Informing America's farmers and ranchers. This is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Jesse Allen. Well, a happy new year to you and yours. Thanks for joining us here on AOA, Agriculture of America. I'm your host, Jesse Allen. Great to be back with you here on the program after a couple of days away. Big thanks to Mike Adams uh, for sitting in at the end of last week as we wrapped up the year 2023. We flipped the calendar over now to 2024, and we have a lot of ground to cover here on today's program. Coming up, we're going to take a look at weather with DTN's John Baranek. How is that outlook for South America? Will we be seeing any chances for snowfall here in the U.S. coming up? We're watching something on the weather models. We're going to talk to John about that here in just a little bit. Uh, after the bottom of the hour in segment three, we're going to talk with the president of U.S. Wheat Associates, Vince Peterson. He will join the show and uh, talk to us, uh, kind of a mid-marketing year update for wheat. So we're going to touch on that and other headlines with him. And then we'll take a look at news coming up at the end of the show, including the implementation of Proposition 12. All that and more is on the way here today on AOA. But kicking things off, we got to talk about the markets. Joining us now, Darren Newsom, Senior Market Analyst with Bar Chart. Darren, happy new year to you and yours. Thanks for joining us today. Hope you're doing well. Oh, we're doing well, Jesse, and the same to you. Happy New Year to you and your family as well. Well, thank you very much, uh, Darren. You know, as I was kind of, I was driving home this past weekend and thinking about what could lie ahead here in the mm -hmm. markets this week, because that's what I do. I love the markets, of course. <laughs> um, you know, I was, I think of the old adage, you know, New Year, New Me. Does that apply to the markets? Is it new year, new markets, or not so much? What do you think, Darren? I, it, it's a great thought, and and you know, from a from a personal point of view, it's it's a great approach to a new year. But as we look at the markets, we almost have to ask ourselves: Is, is new year same old story? Uh, because as we closed out 2023, we saw both corn and soybeans on the defensive. We saw, and, and the key here is we continued to see funds selling. Now. What what's going to be interesting to me? One of the key things, as we to me, there was three key points as we as we closed out twenty three and moved into twenty four. With one of them being, are we going to continue to see funds getting out of commodities and moving their investment money into equities, into treasuries? You know, we were reading all about you know how money market funds were at a record high. You know, as far as investment. Will some of that money come out and, and, and go into st stocks and treasuries as well? We'll have to wait and see. But to me, if we look at commodities, if we focus particularly on the grains, you know, investment traders are going to be looking for long-term opportunities with, with, with bullish supply and demand. And they're just, there isn't a market that just jumps out at me. Soybeans might be the closest uh, based mm -hmm. on what we see in its future spreads. But again, it's nowhere near what it's been in the past. We don't have the inverse situations. We don't even have the inverse situations going on, say, in crude oil these days as well. So I think it's going to be a very interesting 2024 as we focus on that flow of money, all of it being driven by, and it'll be interesting to hear what John has to say, weather, because again, these markets are weather derivatives. Yeah, very, very true. And I know we did see some uh, fairly good rainfall in parts of Brazil over the mm -hmm. weekend. So I know we'll, we'll touch on that with John coming up. You know, you mentioned some of that managed money and it looked like the last CFTC report that for quarter bean features, they 
They look like they're kind of remaining in a downtrend here, and maybe some of those shorts are continuing to grow. Is that what you saw when you looked at the latest report? Yeah, what was interesting is that the corn, you know, they, they've been net short, the funds have been net short corn basing on the, on the on the legacy futures only. That's the report I look at. Uh, based on that report, they've been short corn, net short corn for quite some time. But what really jumped out at me was last week, as of last Tuesday, the funds had moved to a net short futures position in soybeans. This hasn't been the case since 2020. So, you know, this, this tells us a couple of different things. One, for some reason, investment money has gotten bearish on soybeans. Could it be because of the weather situation in Brazil? Because despite everything, Brazil could still raise a record crop and the U.S. isn't able to ship anything. There's always that possibility. They could continue to build this position like they've done in the other grain markets. On the other hand, if they decide to cover, if they decide to go back to a near neutral position, that could bring some buying back in. So anytime a market does go, uh, does go into a net short, it always opens the door. And we've seen what the effect it can have. Fundamentals haven't changed with soft red winter wheat, but funds have covered 60 some odd thousand contracts of their net short future position over the last month. And that's helped to raise the wheat price as well. So we can see that kind of skewing of the market just from, from traders evening out or, or getting out of their positions. Well, Darren, you brought up wheat too. And I think, what was it, uh, all four days last week, Chicago wheat was above its 100-day moving average. It, it mm -hmm. looks like maybe the trend is higher in this wheat trade. It, I mean, at first glance, that is exactly what it looks like. Do I believe it? Not necessarily. No, I don't. I just don't believe the fundamentals have changed to the degree. I think again, these markets, the, the, you know, particularly the soft red winter market, Chicago soft red winter market, is getting skewed by the non-commercial move away from commodities. So they're covering mm -hmm. their short futures position, and that's helping to lift the Chicago market. Now, fundamentally, Kansas City's more bullish. Minneapolis spring wheat certainly more bullish. But the Chicago market is still bearish. It's got a horribly bearish, horribly weak basis market. So, I mean, if we use that as a starting point, it's hard to get overly bullish software when we at this point. I wonder, too, with the calendar officially flipping over to 2024, and I think this definitely would apply most of the corn market. Mm -hmm. I wonder if some farmers just say, okay, enough's enough. I got to move some grain to pay for inputs for 2024's crop and we just start to see the bin doors open up here in this first week of january you know i always hear from a lot of elevator folks and end users that this could be a pretty busy hectic week mm -hmm. as we officially roll the calendar to a new year darren historically that has been a that has been a marketing strategy is to you know hold your grain to the first of the new year and then start unloading it particularly if the weather's nice and you know we can look at the forecast and again i'm interested to hear what john has to say because you know the second week of january is supposed to bring a lot of cold and and snow and everything to the u.s so do producers who are waiting for the the new year for tax purposes for income and all of this sort of thing move as much as they can this week we'll certainly be able to read that in, in, in basis market we've already seen it weakening in some cases and we'll also be able to see it in spreads again that were under pressure last week darren let's go over to the livestock trade i want some uh, thoughts from you there uh, cattle hogs kind of entering into 2024 with uh, a little bit of uncertainty, it feels like, across these markets. What's your thoughts uh, in the protein sector right now? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, they they've they've been under a great deal of pressure. You know, they got so high in late 2023 that when the bottom fell out, they just kind of collapsed. Now the cattle market has kind of stalled as far as its sell-off goes. Both we can see it in both live and feeder cattle. Uh, 
again, I keep I keep highlighting John's conversation. I think it's going to be great uh, to open the year. But what we're going to look at is, you know, are some of these storms that are supposed to move through, is it finally going to hit the feeding area? What we're talking, we're hearing about, you know, parts of Kansas that are supposed to see uh, some winter-like conditions over the coming days and weeks. So if that's the case, if we see a weather shift, we could start to finally see some weather-related buying coming into live cattle for the feed yards in the, across the Southern Plains, possibly spilling over into feeder cattle as well. As far as lean hogs go, they moved, they fell to a new low at the end of December. As soon as I say, look, there's nothing bullish about this market, it being hogs, it's just going to turn around and scream higher. It's, <laughs> it's very difficult to build a bullish argument for the hogs at this point, but it can happen. I mean, I, I'm never going to slam the door and say hogs can't move because, you know, they can change direction on a dime. Definitely need to be on our toes across the board. With that, Dara Newsom, Senior Market Analyst at Bar Chart. Always appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us on AOA. Thanks so much for having me on again, Jesse. We'll be back with more AOA right after this. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we examine how the modern cooperative system solves today's biggest challenges. We'll be talking to CHS experts in farmers and ranchers just like you, and we'll learn how cooperatives apply innovation and technology to help co-op owners get more value every day. Join us Around the Table every Tuesday, or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. non-attorney paid spokesperson. Could your house go into foreclosure? Are you behind on your mortgage payments? Does it seem like the bank has no interest in helping you save your home and you feel like you have nowhere to turn for help? Then we have good news for you. Foreclosure Protection Services can help save your home as they specialize in foreclosure assistance. That's all they do. If you're behind on your mortgage payments, being threatened with foreclosure, have been denied a loan modification, or been the victim of a predatory loan, it's critical that you call Foreclosure Protection Services now at 800-926-1701. Their network of attorneys and their agents are available to speak to you now. If you're behind on your mortgage payments, Foreclosure Protection Services can help stop the foreclosure process. Call today before it's too late. New laws are in effect and may save your home. Call Foreclosure Protection Services now at 800-926-1701. 800-926-1701. That's 800-926-1701. The landscape of media has changed, and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm Radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. Adopt U.S. Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting A Teenager Learning the Lingo Today I'm going to help parents translate teen slang. Now, when a teen says something is on fleek, it's exactly like saying, that's rad. It simply means that something is awesome or cool. Another one is totes. It's exactly like saying, totally, just shorter. As in, I totes love going to the mall with Becca. Another word you might hear is jelly. Jelly is a shorter, better way to say jealous. As in, Chloe, I am like so jelly of your unicorn phone case. You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will think you're, um, rad just the same. To learn more, visit AdoptUSKids.org. 
A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt U.S. Kids, and the Ad Council. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Jesse Allen. Well, with the calendar officially flipping over to 2024, doesn't really mean the weather pattern's going to change all that much. Here to talk about what we are watching in the forecast ahead, DTN meteorologist John Baranek is with us. John, happy new year to you and yours. Great to talk with you once again, and uh, thanks for joining the show today. Hope you had a great holiday. I did, Jesse. Thank you. I hope you did, too. Yeah, I had a, a good holiday. You know, I, I spent a lot of time in uh, north central Iowa seeing my family and uh, temperatures pretty, uh, pretty unseasonable for December into January. It was warm. I, I almost felt like I was uh, I was not in Iowa. And uh, it, it's looking like uh, at least to start this week across the U.S., some of those temperatures going to remain fairly above normal and little precipitation, at least as we start off this first week of January, John. Yeah, overall, this week's going to be somewhat of a continuation of what we saw in December. You know, we had this kind of background ridge across really most of North America for all of December. And uh, that's going to continue here for this week here in January. So, um, you know, it might not be as warm as we might have seen over uh, the Christmas holiday, where some of us were in the 50s as far north as Minneapolis or Wisconsin, which was kind of crazy. Uh, but it's still above normal for most of us here for, for most of this week. Uh, with that, with that ridge sticking around. Now there are some uh, disturbances trying to break that down, and we've got a couple of fronts that might come up through the, the the northern sections of the country. And there's a couple of little storm systems that move across the southern end of the country. This actually looks a lot like El Nino uh, for this week, but we're going to see some big changes coming um, really for for next week. Um, you know, the, the systems that that go by to the south here this week won't really do a whole lot. And there's a little one here for today and tomorrow across kind of the Gulf Coast area. Um, and there's a maybe a slightly larger one that will hit mostly the southern plains and may scrape through the southern Midwest with a little bit of rain snow mix as well. But, um, you know, overall, not too bad. It'll be this one coming in uh, this weekend, though, that's really going to start to change things up here for the middle of January. Well, and I'm glad you brought that up here, John, because I, I've seen some of the early weather models, and I know sometimes you know folks will throw stuff out on social media way too far in advance, trying to forecast uh, big storms like this one that potentially could happen here next week. As as you look at these weather models, I mean, what are we looking at right now in terms of snow, freezing rain, etc.? I mean. What is what are some of the early models runs model runs suggesting to you, John? Yeah, well, I mean, they're all indicating a big storm system that really starts to build out in the central and southern plains, um, most likely on Monday. Uh, that would be the eighth, and then we kind of move that storm system up through the Great Lakes area, and so it wraps in some colder air on the the north side of that. So we should be talking about. Probably a, a, a change from rain to snow. Most likely, we won't see some freezing rain, but you know there could be some in a, you know, a transition zone between the rain and the snow. Um, and, and in terms of just where this is occurring, you know, models are still trying to figure that out. But it could be as far south as as the Texas Panhandle, or maybe even um, uh, you know just south of the the Red River there uh, in North Texas. 
Uh, it looks like Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska definitely are under the gun for some snow accumulations. And then that kind of translates northeastward uh, into the Great Lakes, too. So Missouri, Iowa, uh, Illinois, Wisconsin, Michigan, uh, that those sorts of areas are all under the gun for uh, potential for some heavy snowfall with the system. Uh, it is going to be a big one, too. At least, you know, models have been very consistent on it being a big storm system. And it makes sense with the, the type of uh, deep trough that we're expecting to, to move into the west here this weekend. So uh, you know, that's going to be strong winds. And when you combine that with snow, we may be talking about blizzard conditions. Um, but down towards the Gulf Coast, um, it's still rather warm and it's going to be pulling in a lot of Gulf moisture. We could be talking about severe thunderstorms there across the Gulf Coast. So we've got a lot of widespread impacts from the storm system that, you know, of course, this is a, like a week out. So, you know, things could change and, and uh, you know, depending on where the storm actually tracks is where we'll, we'll see the, the, the biggest impacts. But, you know, we're going to be watching this uh, storm system for, for the next several days here to try and try and pin those things down. But it's going to be uh, widespread uh, impacts and, and a big change uh, because behind it, we're going to get some colder air moving in. Well, we will definitely keep our eyes on this, and I know we'll talk uh, early next week as well once we have a uh, much better handle on what this storm system is going to bring to the U.S. So definitely keep your eyes on the uh, updated forecasts here working through this week. All right, John, let's move to South America. I know a lot of folks have been watching Brazil and Argentina, especially a lot of traders when it comes to the markets. Uh, Looks like Brazil saw some pretty good rains that were forecasted over this past weekend. Is that what you saw? Yeah, and really it was over the driest areas too that, you know, they've had scattered showers and, and all, but, you know, some areas have been missing out, uh, some small areas, some, you know, moderately sized areas uh, in central Brazil had been, you know, on the lower end of things. And, and those areas are the ones that kind of got some of the heavier rain uh, over this weekend. And, and really that continues all through this week as well, Jesse. We got, um, you know, uh, just what we typically see during the wet season. We got widespread showers from the states of Matagrosso to Minas Gerais and, and areas to the north. Um, it's it's really where we typically see them and and uh, kind of the, the strength are even, even heavier than we, we typically uh, see during this time of year. So that's all good as soybeans kind of transition into their fill period here. Uh, as we get into January. So, um, you know, that, that's kind of boding well for them. You know, it's been a rough season so far for soybeans in central Brazil. And, you know, we've talked a lot about hot and dry conditions kind of off and on uh, through the first half of the season, uh, first two thirds of the season. And, um, you know, the, the rain that's coming here is, is nice and everything, but, you know, it's, you know, how much of that damage actually occurred uh, is going to be kind of an interesting thing to, to look at going forward. Well, and I think that's a, a great point you make. And, you know, especially now as we get into January, it's starting to get closer to uh, uh, that critical time period where uh, a lot of farmers in Brazil, they're going to be looking at that safrita corn crop, getting that in the ground. How far behind will they be delayed in some spots, et cetera? So this is, uh, this is getting into kind of an interesting time period for much of that crop in Brazil and in Argentina, too, isn't it, John? You're right. And we're, we've been kind of taking a, you know, not a back burner to the weather situation going on down in South America, but it hasn't been as impactful because it's kind of been in a less critical time period. But now that we're getting towards the end of the season there for soybeans and the, the, the thoughts for uh, the safrina corn planting and how much soil moisture is going to be available or uh, they're going to see big delays from heavy rain moving through. That's all going to be yeah a lot more interesting here over the next couple of weeks. Argentina, though, is continued to be just the bright spot down there 
Um, you know, they, they had some, you know, just light showers that moved through over the weekend. And there's really spotty showers through most of this week. But we get another wave moving through this weekend uh, coming up. And that sets off another kind of train of, of, of waves of showers moving across Argentina. So everything's really looking good down there. Uh, there's soil moisture almost countrywide is near perfect. It's been kind of amazing. And if you look at some of the crop conditions that, that are getting reports out of there, I mean, it's like 1% of the crop, 2% of the crop that's, you know, rated in poor conditions. So it's, they're in really, really good shape there in Argentina. I should ask you too, if we shift just a little farther north from uh, Argentina and Brazil and we look at the Panama Canal, I know there's been a lot of talk about the low water on the canal and how that's impacting shipping around the world. Are, are you seeing any chances for meaningful rainfall in that area here that could maybe help out the levels on the Panama Canal as we move into January? Yeah, you know, the, what really impacts rainfall there in Panama is uh, something called the Intertropical Convergence Zone, the ITCZ, and it kind of wavers from north to south across the equator uh, throughout the year. Just It likes to hover right, right where um, the sun angle is the highest. So at this point of the year, that's actually over kind of Peru and, and northern Brazil in the Amazon. And so it's to the south of Panama. So they're not necessarily in a dry season, but you know, typically their, their heavier rains are, are farther south than them. So uh, that really kind of goes all the way through about March before that starts coming back north. So um, it's, it's going to be a while until we see some, you know, significant, meaningful rainfall move back into Panama. Um, you know, of course, they see some showers every so often, as is pretty typical. Um, during our winter, uh, but you know anything of, of significant meaning, anything that would really boost levels, is is a couple of months away. Jesse, it's it's going to be a while yet. All right, well, something to keep our eyes on. Real quick, too, John, uh, El Nino overall, are are you seeing El Nino start to fade potentially here as we get into January, or are we kind of remaining status quo right now? Oh, we should be right about at the peak. Um, it's kind of right around that two degrees Celsius mark, which is that super El Nino kind of state. And it's it's not going to get any any warmer from here on out. Um, and we'll start to see a decline in those ocean temperatures. At least models are predicting that over the next few weeks. Uh, maybe a little bit more dramatic as we get into to April. Um, but we're, we're sitting right here in early January, right basically at the peak of it. Um, so it's going to be um, impacting our weather for a while. We're going to see a little bit of a break in uh, mid-January here with it, with the, with the pattern changing a bit. But it's going to be the background feature for the next couple of months for sure. All right. Well, we appreciate the forecast. DTN meteorologist John Baranek. John, thanks for joining us, and we will talk to you next week. Sounds good. Thanks for having me on, Jesse. All right. Coming up next on AOA, we'll talk with Vince Peterson from U.S. Weed Associates on the way right after this. Every day, our brave military men and women, along with their families, make tremendous sacrifices for our freedom. Patriotic Hearts, a nonprofit organization, is dedicated to supporting these heroes and their families in their times of need. By donating your unwanted car to Patriotic Hearts, you'll be supporting job transition and job fair programs, veteran entrepreneurship, counseling, and retreats for combat veterans and their spouses. Call 800-560-3870 you'll receive a tax deduction and we'll arrange a free pickup at your convenience. Imagine the difference you can make in the lives of those who have given so much for our country. Your car donation will directly impact military families, 
veterans, providing them with the support they desperately need. Call 800-560-3870. You can become a part of something bigger. Join us in our mission to uplift and honor our military community. Call 800-560-3870 to donate your unwanted card. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Risvet with this Market Update. It's a new day, a new month, a new quarter, and a new year here. The grain and oil seed sector were closed overnight, but Brazilian rains over the weekend and coming this week are expected to limit any buying interest in soybeans. They are down sharply currently. Commodity Weather Group notes that two-thirds of Brazil's soybean belt saw half an inch to two and a half inches, and even locally up to almost eight inches of rain over the past four days, favoring central and northern areas of the soybean belt. The next five days should see another half inch to two and a half inches, and locally some six inches over 60% of the belt. That will be filling in many of the dry areas. Those areas that are likely to miss out on the rains over the coming week include dry spots in Parna and Sao Paulo, although Parna should see rains return mid-month. That's when center-west Brazil begins to dry out once again. Now much of the yield potential in center-west Brazil should be set with this round of rain. That doesn't mean that all will be well with the crop, as some irreversible damage was done by the prolonged heat and dryness in the region. But it does mean that weather will have less of an impact on the soybean crop's potential in center-west Brazil beyond this event, with the focus soon shifting to the winter corn crop planting. Speculators last week increased their net long positions in soybean features while reducing bearish bets on corn. Investors held a net 11,497 futures contracts in beans in the seven days that ended on the 26th. That's up from 10,486 contracts a week earlier. They also reduced their net positions in corn to 172,015 futures contracts. That's from 182,358 a week before. And in wheat, investors raised their net shorts in hard red winter futures to 30,758 contracts. That's up from 28,730 contracts the week prior and is the largest bearish position since December 5th. Crude oil is currently down just a couple of dimes at right around $71.5 a barrel. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Ristvet. Teachers are dynamic leaders, shaping a new generation. They bring a variety of perspectives from diverse backgrounds, innovating how they teach to prepare students for our fast-changing world. Achieving this takes skill and expertise, they're tireless explorers, creatively discovering a universe of solutions, telling stories, experimenting, inspiring, mentoring, connecting cultures, and connecting with each other, leading by example. Experience the unique joy of helping students thrive. Teaching is a journey that shapes lives. Are you ready to begin? Explore teaching at teach.org, a campaign supported by the U.S. Department of Education, teach.org, and one million teachers of color. Information America's farmers and ranchers need, AOA. Now, back to Jesse Allen. And welcome back to AOA. And joining us now, it's, uh, you know, we're wrapping up a year, moving into a new one. 
but it's kind of the mid-marketing year for the wheat industry. We're going to talk about that, some challenges that we've seen here this past uh, year in 2023, and some of the opportunities ahead in 2024. Joining us now, he's the president of U.S. Wheat Associates. Vince Peterson is with us. Vince, great to have you on AOA with me today. I hope you're doing well. Jesse, I am, and thanks very much. It's a pleasure to have the chance to visit with you this morning. Well, let's uh, let's talk about mid-marketing year and, and kind of an update on where U.S. wheat exports are. I know, you know, just recently we've seen some uh, SRW sales to China. That's been a big talking point in the market trade overall. But what are you seeing uh, right now in terms of where this uh, wheat export market stands for the U.S. as we're in the middle of the marketing year? Well, we really are, and we've come through quite a quite a turmoil, tumultuous year so far. You know, we've had uh, early early in the year we had an extremely slow start to exports, and we had a circumstance with U.S. prices being considerably higher than than generally around the world. Farmers don't see that so much on their farm, but when you put that into a, an export position and compare it to what it's selling out of the Black Sea, and particularly with the, with a hard red winter wheat crop we had earlier, well, the last three years, in fact, it's it's just been kind of a tough start to the year. But as you said, we have we've seen some pickup, we've seen some change in the marketplace, we've seen some rebalancing of prices both in hard red winter wheat and spring wheat, and we're picking the pace up a little bit. Uh, we we've seen the sales to China, which now top. 2 million tons in the crop year. And just as kind of a summary, we're right now at about 15 million tons of export sales, almost identical to where we were last year at this time, when actually we were expecting to be a little bit behind uh, this year's total. So we're about uh, five and a half months or six and a half months through the crop year. We're about three quarters of the way to our sales goal for the year. So we've actually got a, a pretty good pace going right now, despite the slow start that we had. Well, and despite that slow start, and you mentioned some of the Black Sea prices, I know that's been a challenge uh, overall for this uh, wheat market now since Russia began its invasion of Ukraine. And Russia's had a high production and uh, low prices. They've dumped a lot of wheat onto the world export market, haven't they, Vince? Well, they have, and I think people are quite surprised by that. But the fact of the matter is, when you look at the numbers, there's actually more wheat being exported out of the Black Sea between Ukraine and Russia combined in the last two years than there were in the years before the war started. Hmm. That seems a little bit counterintuitive, but between what Russia has had record crops, almost two in a row, uh, their exports, but frankly, the Ukrainian wheat continues to move out. And and the way it displaced European wheat was rather dramatic. A lot of Ukrainian wheat had to go across the border by, by land, rail and truck into the surrounding countries in the EU. And that severely depressed the prices in uh, Romania, Bulgaria, Hungary, Eastern Europe, Poland, that, that area, and we had a place where, where probably early in this spring, those prices were $100 a ton below hard red winter wheat prices on, a, on an FOB basis. That's changed considerably. Now those prices are rebalanced. We're within about $20 a ton premium hard red winter wheat over those in the Black Sea. So we're, we're in a better shape in the second half of the year than we were in the, in the last year and a half in that, in that regard. I know closer to home, a uh, recent challenge, we had the closure of the rail passes there in Texas and Eagle Pass and El Paso. And, you know, you think about Mexico, they're a very uh, big customer of U.S. wheat. 
I know we got that issue resolved. We, we still have the migrant crisis down there along the border, and so there's still some unknowns, but at least for now, those rail crossings are reopened. It looks like we maybe got those reopened just in time before uh, too much damage was inflicted maybe on the on the interior, on the rail system here, Vince. Yeah, I would say we 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 skipped a couple of heartbeats for for several days during during that time about a week ago now. Uh, when though when they closed those border crossings, the two of them, those are some very important border crossings for several of our major wheat customers. And you, you think in mind, Mexico has become our largest wheat export market. It has direct rail access, and about seventy percent of the U.S. wheat. It goes to Mexico, which is three and a half to four million tons. It's a big number. It goes by rail down there. So when you cut that off, that's a that's a big uh, problem for the Mexican flour milling customers. They've invested in grain terminals, uh, shuttle unloading facilities, and they depend on that logistics just like our domestic flour milling companies do. So we're glad to see that resolved. Uh, yeah, we have a humanitarian problem on the border. That's a whole different issue but we hope we're out of the woods on the on the rail issue we are talking with the president of u.s wheat associates vince peterson vince uh, let's turn our attention to opportunities let's talk about that as we move into 2024 uh definitely i feel like there's got to be a lot of uh, a lot of big export opportunities out there to not only continue our established relationships with countries like china and mexico but also fi- find new markets too. talk about some of those maybe opportunities ahead on the export front so in our case you know we're we are a very well uh well developed industry in in the wheat area if u.s wheat as an organization has been out in in two different forms but since probably uh the late 1950s it goes back quite a long way and it's been its present form since 1980 we've got 14 overseas offices we've got about two-thirds of our 70 employees all out overseas kind of a boots on the ground marketing program. So I, I, w- I always put it this way in terms of new markets. If there's a new market out there, shame on us for not having been there last year uh, because we are really a forward looking and that sort of thing. So we think we're well-placed. The markets are, are very good. Frankly, um, it's just a matter of, of our prices realigning and being fully competitive. On spring wheat, we were about $30 higher than the Canadian wheat last year. We lost spring wheat business into uh, into North Asia, into South Asia. We certainly lost hard red winter wheat business into Latin America because of the pricing structure. This year, I think the bright light is we've re- we've realigned those. I'm crossing my fingers that this the moisture we've seen in the Midwest is going to help our hard red winter wheat crop. But that's the one that really needs help if we can come up with a decent yield in that winter we crop this year i think we can start to turn the turn the corner and turn this the train back the other direction a little bit on this well and thinking about decent moisture there i know we just saw that uh, winter storm system come through here over christmas time uh, some of those areas in kansas and parts of nebraska colorado uh, maybe got some helpful moisture there potentially i know some folks dealt with ice out there too vince but uh, hopefully we got some moisture on that hard red winter wheat crop or at least a start yeah, well, we really need it. You know, the, the grand scheme of things, you know, the United States has produced, because of the drought situation the last three years, we've produced about 45 million tons of wheat each year in the last three years. Simple math, we use about 30 million tons domestically uh, for, for in our milling and seed seed 
part of the equation. That only leaves 15 million tons left over unless we're pulling from stocks or doing something else, which we've been doing. So in order to export 20 million tons like we'll do this year, we're reducing stocks to do that. We need to get that back where we're producing the wheat, uh, having a little bit on the surplus side, and then we're and then we'll be fully competitive back in the market. I think I'm, we're hoping 2024 is the year that corner turns for us. I want to ask you too, real quick. Uh, we just uh, a few months ago got the announcement of RAP, the Regional Agricultural Promotion Program from uh, USDA and the administration. Uh, talk about that a little bit and, and your perspective uh, from the U.S. Wheat Associates on, on what that program means. Yeah, these are really important things for for all of agriculture, not not just wheat, but almost every product. Probably uh, seventy different organizations for everything from wheat, corn, soybeans, uh, meats to the cal- what we call the California fruits and nuts. All that, in some way or another, use these programs for export market development. Um, the basic programs we use that are USDA contracted have not increased in in their monetary numbers since the year about two thousand and two. So we're twenty years with no increase in those budgetary numbers. So this RAP program fills in a ver- what we think is a very critical uh, point in between those things and a farm bill, which needs to come to to address the, the sort of depreciated value of those other programs. It's a very important thing. We're, we're, we're frankly very glad to see uh, Secretary Vilsack and his and his administration at USDA look at that and be proactive with it. And I would give, we do give them credit for for, for coming up with an idea to fill this gap. You mentioned the farm bill, too. I, I'll end with this here, Vince. Uh, we obviously got an extension of the 2018 farm bill. We got to get the new one done. And I know we're coming up into a presidential election year. Are you hopeful that uh, both the House and Senate can uh, work together and get a new farm bill passed here sometime, maybe in the first quarter of, uh, of this year? Well, I would love to be I would love to be optimistic on that. Fortunately for us, the farm bill uh, negotiation sits a little bit over in our sister organization, the National Association of Wheat Growers. They're the lobby group. They're the ones that work with the Congress. A lot of the burden on that comes on their shoulders. We do have a vested interest in that in terms of our own programs. And the, mm-hmm. But, you know, I think the political environment is difficult. I just put my put my wheat had aside just a little bit there's there's a lot of uh, a lot of gap to cover on those two things so whether we get that in the first quarter of this year i don't uh, i don't think i bet the farm i don't have on that okay all right vince uh before we let you go anything final we haven't covered you want to touch on or anything else you want to add or reiterate for folks today well i think for us you know we're an international market development organization we're we're out overseas doing doing the work to it, that the, to uh, the advanced before sales technical servicing and the after sales servicing that we do we're a boots on the ground organization and finally 2023 has been the one year after the really two and a half years of covid that we've been able to be out full force on the ground seeing customers in their plants in their businesses and it's it's for us really turned the corner on our getting our business back to normal operations so we're really happy to be here well, we were happy to have you on the show today. Folks can learn more uswheat.org. With that, President of U.S. Wheat Associates, Vince Peterson. Vince, thanks for joining us. Happy New Year to you, and we will talk to you again soon. Thank you, Jesse. Nice to be with you this morning. And once again, really appreciate the time. Good stuff there with Vince Peterson, the President of U.S. Wheat Associates. Learn more online, uswheat.org. All right, well, coming up next, we're, of course, watching a lot of uh, other news headlines throughout agriculture, and that includes Proposition 12. 
As the calendars flipped over to 2024, where do things stand with implementation of Prop 12? We're going to talk about that and more coming up next here on AOA. Over the years, you've brought them into your home. You were prescribed opioids after the C-section, when dad injured his back, when your basketball star tore his ACL. Opioids helped with the pain, and you held on to them, just in case. But did you know holding on to unused opioids puts your family at risk? Opioids are powerful, pain-reducing prescription medicines. But most people who are prescribed opioids don't finish their prescriptions. So millions of unused opioids are sitting at homes across the country. And tragically, more than 100 Americans die every day from overdoses involving opioids. What can you do to protect your family? Remove the risk of unused opioids from your home. Pills, patches, or syrups in drawers, purses, and cabinets, anywhere they might be hiding. To find out how to dispose of them properly, visit www.fda.gov slash drug disposal. You can't escape a traffic jam. Know what else you can't escape? Seasonal allergies. And you might think you can avoid that coffee stain until... Oh, really? You can't escape a lot of things in life. But you can escape prediabetes. Prediabetes captures one in three adults. There are usually no signs of prediabetes. In fact, most people don't even know they have it. But with early diagnosis, you can change the outcome and prevent or delay type 2 diabetes. Take action by taking the one-minute risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. You might not be able to escape having this song stuck in your head, but you can escape prediabetes. Go to doihaveprediabetes.org today. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Today, we're talking with Charlie Carter, Product Quality and Additives Manager for CHS Refined Fuels Commercial Supply, about how the right fuel will keep equipment running in the winter. Charlie, what happens to diesel fuel in equipment when temperatures drop, and why does that matter? Standard number two diesel fuel generally does not fare well in cold temperatures. Diesel fuel can form crystals and clog filters and fuel lines, and prolonged freezing temps can cause engines to not operate properly. That can basically lead to that dreaded downtime that we all hate. So uh, it's really important to take precautions to prevent these issues from occurring, especially in cold weather conditions. Charlie, when should farmers switch their diesel blends? Yeah, so every situation is going to be slightly different and somewhat temperature dependent. So it's important that you work with a knowledgeable fuel supplier who has a grasp on the diesel characteristics in their geography. With that being said, you should be blending your tanks to a winter blend when temperatures are right around the freezing point or 32 degrees Fahrenheit. It's important to blend early and when the fuel is at least 10 degrees above the cloud point of the fuel or it won't mix well together. When you're thinking about cost and performance, what's the best way to determine the best winter fuel blend? So you will need to decide really what's best for your individual operation and what temperature you expect to be able to operate your equipment in. So if your operation relies on your equipment needing to be up in those harshest climates, you're undoubtedly going to need to invest in a diesel blend that's going to meet those needs. You're going to run the risk of being stranded on the side of the road, unable to perform your critical tasks. 
So it's best to discuss the specific needs with your fuel supplier as they're going to be able to deliver the high quality Cenex fuels at the correct blends for optimal performance and peace of mind. Well, thank you for joining us around the table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership at cooperativeownership.com. Paid non-attorney spokesperson. Are you over the age of 60 and been diagnosed with lung cancer? If so, you and your family may qualify for a cash award. Our experienced attorneys are standing by to evaluate whether you have a lung cancer claim that qualifies you for a cash award. The consultation is absolutely free and there is no risk and no money out of pocket. We only receive a fee when we secure you and your family a settlement. 250,000 people are diagnosed with lung cancer every year. You're not alone in this battle. We can help make sure that you and your family are financially safe and that medical expenses are covered. Again, if you've been diagnosed with lung cancer and are over age 60, call now. Don't delay. There are deadlines for filing claims. We're standing by 24-7. Call us at 1-844-903-1744. 1-844-903-1744. That's 1-844-903-1744. Attorney Advertising. William Stephacker Jr. is the attorney responsible for this ad. Main office, Granton, Pennsylvania. May not be available in all states. Information America's farmers and ranchers need. AOA. Now, back to Jesse Allen. Well, California's Proposition 12 was a big talking point last year with the Supreme Court ruling and more of the legal fights. And it's again a hot topic as we kick off 2024 as inspectors are already out for Proposition 12 compliance. Welcome back here to AOA as we uh, take a look at some news headlines. Inspections already starting up around the country in anticipation of California's Proposition 12 law. Now, while officially in effect July 1st, the law requiring animal living condition updates for products like pork to be sold in the state began with the clock turning over to 2024. Michael Formica, legal strategist with the National Pork Producers Council, says inspections are ongoing. California has approved 14 or 15 different firms to do these audits, or you can invite California out. I have heard of a couple of producers who have asked for California to come out and inspect their farm. Now, the most recent USDA report says animal confinement legislation nets compliant pork an average of $4.94 a hundredweight premium. When it comes to Prop 12 enforcement for that premium, Formica says there are some updates. California has exempted ground meat because it's not a whole pork. It's not a whole cut of pork. Um, from from Proposition 12, so ground product would not be covered. Um, sausage would not be covered. In frozen food, NPPC negotiated to make sure any products in the supply chain sold before July 1 could legally be sold. January 1, that will no longer be allowed to be sold in California. Formica does not think there will be any more delays. The law will be fully implemented, and there is one big concern across industries. If you are a grocery store operator in California, if you're a consumer in California, um, you're already dealing with record you know, food price inflation that has been going on. We have seen in California, price of pork is up significantly. Come January 1, I, I suspect that you know, that jumps up some more. Formica adds 60% of grocery sales in California are from small, independently run grocers. Those generally don't have access to compliant pork, and so we, we're watching that marketplace as well. And again, that's Michael Formica from the NPPC. Well, California's Proposition 12 was already having a negative impact before the new year began. Scott Hayes, president of the National Pork Producers Council, says Prop 12 is not what it was marketed to be. 
They tout it as a higher standard for animal welfare. It is not. It is just simply a different standard that causes farmers to have to change the way they raise pigs, make a sizable capital investment to make that change, which is not better necessarily for the pigs. Farmers, the veterinarians, they know how to take care of pigs, not the activists in California. It's also affecting California residents. What we see with California now that it's been enacted is higher meat prices in California. Prices in August were up as much as 27% in California on the cuts that are affected by Prop 12, while the rest of the country seen about a 2% decrease in price. And there's also a little bit of issue with availability of product. And Hayes talks about what other ag sectors can learn from Prop 12. Keep in mind, the Supreme Court agreed that this is a problem, and it's a real problem. They just didn't think it was their problem. So we still have hope that we can get Congress to see this as a real problem and get it fixed. As far as a watch out for other industries, I think certainly this opens up the door for about anything. Any state says, we don't like the way another state's doing something, they have the right to regulate it now. And again, that is Missouri Pork Farmer and President of NPPC, Scott Hayes. Well, dairy prices, they ended 2023 on a down note. Katie Burgess, Director of Risk Management Forever Ag, talks about the 2024 outlook. Our expectations for prices next year is kind of middle of the road. We expect it to be better than 2023, but it's kind of a tightrope. Globally, milk supply is starting to tighten up a little bit. So if supply is tighter, maybe that means higher prices. But we are still really concerned about global dairy demand. We see places like China buying a lot less, Southeast Asia, Japan is taking less product. And all of those are big customers of dairy generally and for us in the U.S., Success in 2024 will depend on higher demand for dairy products. If demand doesn't pick up, it could be another year of soft prices. And I think the lesson of 2023 was that prices could fall even further than you expect based on what we saw this summer. We always encourage producers to consider Dairy Margin Protection Program via the FSA office or Dairy Revenue Protection Insurance because you can never say for sure what the future holds. So having some downside protection is really important. And once again, that is Katie Burgess with EverAg. Well, 2024 is likely to see competition between EVs and ethanol-powered hybrids heat up as the ethanol industry makes a play for a share of the carbon-reducing vehicle market and EPA moves to finalize tough new auto emission rules. The EPA proposed in 2023 among the toughest new car pollution rules that could force EVs to make up two-thirds of new cars sold in the U.S. by the year 2032, cutting their emissions in half. USDA Secretary Tom Vilsack told the Growth Energy Summit that farmers should stop blaming electric vehicles and look to expand ethanol markets in aviation and other ways. Farmers come up to me and they say, oh, will you guys stop talking about electric vehicles? No, because we want to make sure that we continue to have manufacturing in this country. It's not going to put you guys out of business. It's not. We're going to have cars that use ethanol for a long, long time. But Renewable Fuels Association head Jeff Cooper argues EVs could suppress ethanol demand and are not a solution. They, in most cases, do not deliver the the range that was advertised, that they have problems in uh, extremely hot weather or extremely cold weather, you know, that there are, are problems with finding places to charge these vehicles. Cooper says the RFA has been road testing a plug-in hybrid flex fuel vehicle that uses E85. If you are truly interested and if you are truly serious about reducing carbon emissions and doing it at the lowest cost possible for consumers and doing it in a way that doesn't 
compromise or sacrifice vehicle range and convenience, this is what we got to be looking at. And Cooper says the test vehicle, a Ford Escape, got 440 miles out of a full tank of E85 and full charge, nearly double that of a comparable EV. All right, that is a look at the latest news headlines. We are out of time here on AOA today. Big thanks again to Mike Adams for sitting in for me last week. I really do appreciate it as I took a few days uh, with the family and got to see uh, my mom and nieces and brother and sister in Iowa for the holiday season. So again, big thanks to Mike Adams for sitting in last week on AOA. We have a lot of issues to tackle in front of us here on AOA as we get into 2024. Coming up on tomorrow's program, we'll talk markets with Don Rose from U.S. Commodities. We'll have the January episode of the monthly grind for the National Corn Growers Association. We'll also talk with Tanner Emke from CoBank. All that more coming up here tomorrow on AOA. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jesse Allen. Have a great rest of your day. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Corn is native to the American continents and was unknown to the rest of humanity until Columbus arrived in the New World in the 15th century. It took less than 100 years after Columbus's discovery for corn to be introduced to farmers in Asia, Africa, Europe, and the Pacific Islands. After wheat and rice, corn is the third most cultivated crop in the world. The four nations that purchase the most corn from the United States are Mexico and Colombia, who use it as a food ingredient, and Japan and South Korea, who buy it mainly for animal feed. Around one-third of the corn grown in the United States is eaten by livestock, another third is used in the production of ethanol fuel, and the rest is either consumed by humans, exported to other nations, or used industrially. Now that's sweet corn, that's the variety that most Americans grill or boil for cookouts or just eat straight out of a can with a spoon, accounts for just 1% of all corn grown in the United States. These Farm Facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. Farming is dangerous. There's dangers all around us. We work around it and we live around it every day. And we just become desensitized to what's around us. We go through safety training and, you know, we try and do these things to make sure accidents don't happen, but you just never know. There are so many farmers that I think take for granted all of the underground utilities that are there. You don't want to hit a gas pipe because that's your life. The other part of it is if you hit certain things, you're liable for it. I mean, we kind of know what's out here, but all at the same time, you, you just always call. Farm Safe 811 starts with you. Whether you're installing drain tile or doing any sort of digging, always call 811 and wait for any underground lines to be marked and have the depth confirmed. That's farming with care. But if a line does get damaged, go somewhere safe and call 911. Always keep safety in the back of your mind. Just stay humble. For more information, go to farmsafe811.org.